Well, good morning, everyone. My name's Ross Gilbert, if uh, we haven't met, and I'm the, the lead pastor here at New Life, and we're thrilled to have all of you here this morning. And uh, if it gets a little cool, we'll just do a little calisthenics to get going, get the blood pumping. Jim will lead us in a warm-up, and that would be, uh, that will hurt. So we won't do that. <clears throat> some, uh, some advice that is often uh, given to people is don't forget where you come from. And it's, it's good advice. It's wise advice often given to uh, maybe uh, athletes or actors or performers or even people in business who make it to the show, right? Make it big time where they grew up in maybe a, in a bit of a, a more poor area in, in a little under underprivileged. And then they hit the big time of all this extra money and that money or that fame or that glory, whatever, the danger is it could go to their head. And so this advice of don't forget where you come from is a way to kind of keep them humble, keep their feet on the ground, uh, even though their head might be in the clouds sort of idea. Well, in a sense, I think that one of the one of the takeaways, at least from this passage that we've been studying, we've been kind of working through Ephesians chapter two. Uh, one of the, the takeaways, I think, is that sense of not forgetting where you come from. I think what Paul's doing in these first three uh, verses of chapter two in particular, he's explaining the human condition for every single one of us when we arrived here on planet Earth. So he's, in this case here, he's reminding the saints of Ephesus of who they were before they encountered Jesus and put their faith in him. And, and that's really important. You're going to see a number of times where he's talking about past tense, you were, which implies that there's been a change, that it used to be this way, but it's not anymore. Something's different. But it is important for us to understand what, where are we coming from? What were we before? And, and that, I think, if we understand where we were and where we are now, what it'll do is we'll see that it's such an incredible change and a, and a change that we didn't cause, change that we're ultimately not responsible for, that I think will lead us to that, that place of gratitude and humility. Just again, remembering where you came from and remembering where you are today will lead to that. So let's read the passage then we're going to be looking at uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 3 to 6. And so you can follow along on the screen here. So Paul writes this, Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Well, let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray as we, we kind of discover the human condition, it's not going to be very pretty, but we'll see it for what it is, which is truth. And in seeing it, we could also then not just stop there, but see what you have done to change us. And that will lead us to a place of humility and gratitude and blessing towards you. And, and maybe even more importantly, a greater trust and dependence upon you for that. So thank you, Jesus, for what you're about to do. Speak through me and, uh, and make these words alive, because that's what we're looking for. We're looking for life this morning. In your name we pray. Amen. 
So I just said earlier that the opening verses of chapter two explain the human condition for everyone when we arrive here on planet Earth. And I think it can be summarized in, in verses chapter two, verse one and verse three, where it says, basically, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind. And were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. You were dead. I mean, maybe more accurately, better translated was you being dead in your trespasses and sins. So this death here, being dead, doesn't mean that there was no, no physical life in us. It doesn't mean that you weren't breathing and, and that, you know, you weren't, didn't have a pulse and brain signals and so forth. Although we sometimes wonder about the brain a bit for some people. You very much had a physical life, but you didn't have the life of God. You being dead, we're experiencing death. We were essentially the walking dead, as you might consider it that way. Because the only source of real authentic life is in Jesus, is in God. And being dead, when we arrived here on planet Earth, we weren't connected to God. We couldn't receive that life from God. And so we were experiencing death. We are experiencing death in our spirit we've been looking at in terms of not knowing that we are loved by God. We are experiencing unloved and rejected and alone and, and insignificance and insecurity. And if I could say one word to explain all that, it's you and I were experiencing deep shame. There's something wrong with us. And I know it. And I'm afraid that you're going to find out about it. And so we're experiencing death in our spirit. And therefore, we're also experiencing death in our soul. We're experiencing uh, the despair and the dismay and the frustration and anxiety and, and the lies we're believing, which leading us all to these poor choices we're making. And yes, even in our physical body, we're experiencing death as it's continuing to experience decay. We were born being dead. And it's because of that, because we didn't, <clears throat> because we didn't have life in God, we had to go looking for life somewhere else. And so we all turned to the flesh. And we, we've been discovering that the goal of flesh, what it's trying to do <clears throat> is to get a person to find life out of themselves independent of God on their own strength. And, and that's being done through either achieving or earning or performing for love. If I, if I do something nice for you, will you love me back? If I'm kind to you and accepting of you, will you be accepting of me? If I'm tolerant of you, will you be tolerant of me? And so we're trying to earn that love and acceptance. Or when, when that's not happening and, and it's not, not possible to earn it, then I'm trying to protect it. Oh, there you go. See, see, there's one person that loves me. She just doesn't want to hear me cough. That's all. Thank you. Um, where was I now? Protect. Thank you very much. One person's listening. That's why you're in the front row, right? The rest of you. So, so otherwise we protect ourselves of the, from, uh, from being hurt. And we might do that through withdrawing or hiding and, and, and escaping or putting up these barriers. So I don't let people really know who I am. Maybe put on a mask where people ask, how you doing? Everything's fine. Everything's okay. Cause again, I don't want you to know what I know. And then when that doesn't work and I can't perform and I can't protect, then I just try to numb and I, I just run away from the problem and, and I hide and, you know, Netflix or food or, or even alcohol and drugs and, and, or really if you're depressed, country music, right? So we do all kinds of things like this, right? And it's all flesh. All of it is flesh, right? 
But maybe the most damning statement that Paul makes in those first three verses of chapter two is he says that you and I, all of humanity, when we first arrive here on earth, we are born by nature as children of wrath. Now, in my, in my study of this passage, I was reading various commentaries, and many, many people, <clears throat> the commentaries, they looked at this idea of being children of wrath and described it as this way, is that when we arrive here on earth, we have the wrath of God on us. That the anger and the displeasure and the condemnation and the judgment of God was upon you and I. And that's how they've interpreted the passage. But I don't think that actually fits. I think the reason they interpreted it that way is because that's often how God's been portrayed as this very angry, very disappointing, very frustrated, very judgmental God that really is waiting for an opportunity to express that until Jesus got in the way. But that's not the heart of God as we're about to see. I don't think it's the wrath of God on you and I because the context, the grammar even, all says something else. And it's far more damning of you and I. It says that you and I by nature, meaning we were born this way. It's, it's in the genes, so to speak. It's who you are. We were by nature children of wrath or wrathful children. See, there's something wrong with you and I. The reality is when you and I were born, we were born self-centered, dead, and we're by nature wrathful, vengeful people. Now, that, that might sound harsh to some of you. And, and you might think, well, I don't know. That, that's a bit over the top. But let's take a look at some of the evidence. Let's take a look at some of the history of mankind. So in Genesis chapter 3, that's where the fall happens. That's where Adam and Eve, they, they eat of the wrong tree and, and they, you know, shame shows up and, and they're hiding themselves and they get, get kicked out of the garden. Well, chapter 4, the very next chapter, is a story of Cain and Abel. And I've kind of marveled at that story, how there's not now this slow decline of humanity where after the garden, somebody told a lie. And then somebody stole a piece of fruit. And then somebody said something mean to someone else. And then it just, you know, slowly eroded. And then, and then you know, Adam and Eve, you know, they're, they're about 400 years old going, you know, when we were first around, you know, these kids today, they just don't know how good they got it, right? Like, there isn't anything like that. Instead, Cain Abel, chapter four, what do we see? Murder, right off the get-go. And, and then murder in a way that is no remorse, no guilt, no, no regret, just absolutely killed his brother because of jealousy. That was it. That was it. Th that's the decline of, of humanity. It was like over a cliff. I mean, basically, we could look at it and we'd say this way, we're not in Kansas anymore, Toto. Right? We're not in, we're not in the Garden of Eden. We're not in paradise. Something dramatically has happened to mankind that he's gone from being made in the image of God, wonderful and perfect, to now killing his own brother because he's jealous. We're seeing the anger here. Let's keep going. Let's look at some other evidence. You have the, the amount of wars in, in terms of throughout, throughout the history of humanity. And, and we've continually showed over and over again that wrathful, vengeful nature. We fight just to pillage, just to gain more power, to, to gain more money. I mean, entire tribes have been wiped out. The amount of deaths from war is just incredible. Now, I'm not here, I, I personally, I don't believe that war in itself is bad. I think there are times where war is necessary. 
World War II is a great example of that, that we needed a war in order to stop someone really evil like Adolf Hitler. But here's my point. The fact that there is both, the fact that there is a war and that there sometimes needs to be a war is evidence of how bad man, mankind is, how far we've, we've fallen, that we need people to actually stop others who are way over the top with that vengefulness. And so there is a, there's sometimes a value to fight back against that tyranny. I remember walking around the, the World War II memorial at uh, Washington, D.C., and, and I came across this plaque. It was sort of uh, in a circle on the ground, and I love the quote, and it says that we came to liberate, not to conquer, to restore freedom and to end tyranny. So there's value sometimes to fighting, but the fact that we have to fight in the first place is what tells us that we're not in Kansas anymore. Here's another one. This is from 1926. The, the state of Minnesota, they decided to put together a study, an exhaustive study where they got a bunch of experts together and, and they were trying to figure out what is the root cause of crime. They called the Minnesota Crime Commission. And this is in 1926. They published, they published a 77-page report at the end of this. And this was their mission statement. They said, during the last decade, a crime wave increasing in volume and seriousness has been sweeping over the world. Our country, far from being free from this general revolt against law, has perhaps more than any other suffered from lawlessness. Minnesota, in common with other states, has a serious crime problem. This problem cannot be solved unless every aspect of it is given serious and thoroughgoing consideration by men of judgment, experience, and judicial pose. In the solution of that problem, it's necessary to sift the evidence, to separate facts from conjecture, to learn the truth, and then to follow that truth relentlessly. This was 1926. This was, this was actually a time of boom. Like everyone was doing really well. The, the Great Depression is still not another three, four years away. And so their experience is massive crime wave where every way, everyone should have been doing well. But then listen to this often repeated quote from the study. It says this. This is their conclusion. Every baby starts life as a little savage. He's completely selfish and self-centered. He wants what he wants, when he wants it his bottle, his mother's attention, his playmate's toys, his uncle's watch, or whatever. Deny him these, and he seizes with rage and aggressiveness, which would be murderous if he were not so helpless. He's dirty. He has no morals, no knowledge, no developed skills. This means that all children, not just certain children, but all children are born delinquent. If permitted to continue in their self-centered world of infancy, given free reign to their impulsive actions to satisfy each want, every child would grow up a criminal, a thief, a killer, or a rapist. They're cute, right? I mean, they're cute, but there's a lot of truth to that, right? Left to their own devices, this is what will happen. I mean, that's the story of the Lord of the Flies, where you get these little kids on this island and it ends up murdering and, and factions and betrayal and on and on because there's this fight for power. And what we're seeing there is just essentially the human heart being exposed. Think of it another way. 
In 1992, after the, the Rodney King beatings and then the, uh, the police officers who were not convicted of that, there was large riots across L.A. But notice immediately what kicks in. It's not just a protest at the injustice of that. Immediately what happens? Looting, uh, uh, murder, assault of all kinds of innocent people. What ended up happening is people says, here's an opportunity where there's really no consequence now. So I can do whatever I want because I'm not afraid of going to jail. I'm not afraid of being, you know, something negative happening to me. And so immediately that's gone. The sky's the limit. Or Katrina, when Katrina hit and wiped out New Orleans, they, uh, they took the, the Superdome, the giant football stadium in New Orleans, and made it into one big, giant temporary shelter because they had no power, no, no running water, and so forth. So countless people go into the Superdome. But the people who were there describe a horrific encounter there. Again, murder, assault, beatings, rape, because there's no one there to protect anyone. And so what we see then, again, is the, is the heart of man being expressed where it's no longer in check. Now, that might seem over the top. And not everyone's a murderer. Not everyone's a thief. Not everyone does all those things. And I, I would grant you that. But let's think of a more simple world, online, social media. Some people refer to Twitter as the sewer of the Internet. But I think it's just merely a mirror of humanity. Because what happens is you get online now and, and now I can be anonymous. Now I, no one has to know who I am and now I can say whatever I want to say. I can do whatever I want to do because there's really, we believe at least, no kickback, no negative consequences from that. And what do we see? We see anger and, and bullying and cruelty over and over again. And it's even got to the point where people feel justified in that. So if someone says something foolish, then I'm justified in attacking that person. You say something mean, I can say something mean to you, and I feel actually like I'm doing a service to everyone. That's how sick and twisted everything is. It's a very, very upside-down world in this sense. So the belief now is what we see is that I can do something cruel and shameful to another person who's acted in a shame and cruel, cruel way, and somehow that's justified and okay. That's the condition of our hearts. That's the condition of humanity. Now, listen closely here. I'm not trying to pick on the behavior because it's not about fixing the behavior. Behavior, really, all it's doing is exposing the root problem. It's just showing to us the, the, this, the, the problem is deeper than what we do. This wrathful, ugly behavior is the product of what mankind has become as a result of Adam and Eve and that sin in the garden. This is how the Apostle James puts it in James chapter 4 and 1 and 2. He says, what's the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? It's a battle within. You lust and you do not have. You commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain. You fight and you quarrel. You're looking to satisfy something, but you can't do it. So we're all behaving in a sinful manner because we're not experiencing life. We're lacking that life. We're experiencing death instead. And so the sinful behavior is our attempt to find life in our hearts, in our souls, in our spirits. 
But maybe the best death diagnosis, the best summary of all this was given by the prophet Jeremiah. In Jeremiah 17, 9, he says this, the heart of man, the heart of mankind, every single person is more deceitful than all else. It's desperately sick. Who can understand it? See, mankind, his heart is wicked. His heart is deceitful. That's the problem. And, and so humanity, not understanding that that's the root problem, all they see is the symptoms, they see the bad behavior, they think, well, we can fix this now. We just need to find a way to control the bad behavior and hopefully get more of the good behavior as a result of that. Basically, we're just eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil all over again. And so we, we solve it with just, well, we need new laws. We need more laws. We need tighter laws. And, and somehow all those laws will put things into place. We see it in our society, in our culture today, where we have a wave of, of gang crime and gun violence. And so what do we need? We need more laws to take guns out of people's hands. Listen, you can take all, you can have all the laws in the world. That's not going to take those violent gangs and violent guns off the street. Because guess what? They're not following the laws in the first place. We already have a law that says don't murder. That didn't seem to stop them. Don't, don't steal. Didn't seem to stop them. It's not a matter of laws because the laws can't control the heart of man. Or, or sometimes what we do is think, well, we can solve it through education. That's what we need. Just these people, they're struggling. They just didn't get a good education. And so if we educate them, that's going to fix the problem. No, because you can't teach the sin out of a person. It's not possible. I have a friend of mine, a police officer, and he likes to tell me, he says, you know, we only catch the dumb criminals because they're dumb enough to get caught. So they get caught and we put them in the jail and they, well, we just need to educate them and that will fix their problem. And so you educate the criminal. Now what do you got? A smarter criminal who might not get caught the next time. Thank you very much, right? I'm not saying it's wrong to educate people and so forth. That's not my, my point. My point is that's not going to fix the problem. It's a band-aid on a bullet hole. Or, and again, you see a lot of this today, we think, you know what? The problem is just merely the environment that we live in. The, the, the social structure that we have, the political system that's in place. If we can just change that, if we can reform that, if we can fix that, then that's going to fix all of our economic and so, social injustices. So that's what it is. So on one side, you can say the, the answer is socialism. That's our solution. We just need to embrace socialism where the state now has the power, where, where now we can balance off the injustices. So the super rich are less rich because we're going to take some of their wealth and the poor, they will have more money because we're going to give them wealth. And that's going to balance things out. We're going to balance out the economy. It's going to balance out wealth. It's going to balance out all kinds of different things. And so that becomes the answer, we think just redistributing the money and the power. On the other side, you got the, well, the answer is more capitalism because that's what got in this place. We just need to reform it and improve on it. And we just need more capitalism because that's going to now encourage people to have a good work ethic and reward them for their efforts and so forth. And, and that will, you know, is spur on more growth, more wealth, more jobs and so forth, more opportunities. So you have these two extremes. And both have their advantages and both have their flaws. But they share one common terminal flaw. 
why they're guaranteed to fail. Doesn't matter if it's capitalism, doesn't matter if it's communism, doesn't matter if it's socialism, doesn't matter. Just take a look at all the systems. Has not worked. And the reason is the common flaw in all of them is humanity. People are rotten and they will abuse capitalism. They will abuse socialism. They will abuse all these systems because the problem isn't the heart of man. So none of mankind's attempts will work because all at best all it is, is the flesh trying to self-manage the flesh. And when the flesh manages the flesh, you still get more flesh. And as Jesus says in John 6, 63, the flesh profits nothing. The answer can't be in a better flesh system or a more managed flesh system. The answer's got to be something else. It's got to be Jesus. So let's summarize then what Paul's saying in his teaching so far. He says, even as the rest, so all of us, it's not just, you know, these people over here or, or this group over here. No, no, all of us. So all of humanity is in this boat. It's true for everyone. We, being dead in our trespasses and sin, all have sinned. Come sure of the glory of God. Nobody is good. Romans 3, 23, or sorry, Romans 3, beginning verse 9 to 23, describes this so well. None who are righteous. There are none who are good. Literally, all of us are rotten fruit when we show up here. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Isn't this wonderful? How many people are glad you got up on a Sunday morning to hear this? This is, I mean, it's, it sounds hopeless, doesn't it? It sounds like just filled with utter despair. Because it's true. And that's what makes it so despairing. At least it was true for us. It it was true until, but God. I love these two words. Maybe, Maybe the two sweetest words in the English language, but God. You see, things look bleak. They're, they're despairing and they're empty and they're fruitless and we're just, we're worried and we're terrified and everything's going very dark. And then, but God. And everything changes direction. See, the reality is you and I, we cannot save or heal or fix or restore or make humanity right. There's nothing humanity can do The proverb that says, can a leopard change its spots? No. Humanity can't change humanity. Can't be done by that. It can only be done by God. And God can, and God is. So yeah, I want you to first, before we get into that, I want you to notice the motivation of God, though. See, God's motivation is not based on you and I. It's it's based rather on his rich mercy and his love and his grace. See, I I want you to understand, he didn't sit here and go, you know, that Nathan kid, he's got potential. He's really got potential. I mean, he's had a bad, bad shot at life at the beginning, and he's, you know, made some, made, made, made a lot of mistakes. He's, he's really, he's, okay, maybe not Nathan. So, so Craig actually has got a lot of potential, right? Craig's got chances. You just, just need to help him out, give him some, you know, a little push in the right direction. And, and then I think, you know, Craig and, yeah, and Nathan too, together, man, the investment I'm going to reap from that is going to be so good. 
I mean, I just, I just put a little bit in and then they're going to serve and they're going to do this and going to do that. And you know, okay. All right. Yeah. This, this will work for me because of what I can get from these people. That's not what motivates God. See, God was motivated not by you and I, but by who he is himself. See, God's heart is revealed in his rich mercy and his character and and his great love with which he loved us. So let's start, let's break that down, this rich mercy part, because I love the picture of that, this, this rich or this abundant, overflowing mercy. I say it reveals the heart of God because it shows his compassion. It shows his, his mercy. It shows his care that he has towards man. He's not, he's not out to get mankind. He looks at humanity and he sees the wars. He sees the abuse. He sees the inequality. He sees the, the people take advantage of their power. And his heart breaks for us. It's not right. It's not why I created these people for. This is not what I want for them. And so he has this heart of mercy and compassion and understanding towards us. So this rich mercy and this great love. Romans 5 verse 6 says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Please understand, God didn't start loving you the moment you raised your hand at that altar call. He didn't start loving you the moment you prayed that sinner's prayer. That's not where it began. God loved you and I, even when we were wrathful children. He loved you and I, even when our heart was deceitful and wicked and beyond cure. He's loved you the whole time. Because it's what he does is who he is. And so it's not that it's just starting. See, the reality is you and I, we didn't get to experience that love because we simply weren't connected to that love. Think about it this way. You, you build a new house. There's got no power in it. And then you hook it up to the power lines and suddenly there's power. That doesn't mean the power plant came online. Power plant was always running. The power was available. They just hadn't been connected and it couldn't use it. Well, God's been loving you and I since before you and I were born. Before the foundations of the world. And he didn't just love some people, the chosen or the elect, the people who one day would receive him. No, no, no. For God so loved the world. He loves everyone. And he's, pardon the pun, dying to share that love with people. So he has this great love. I love this one story. Some of you might have heard me share this in other places, but it's such a great description. It's a story of a man named Malcolm Smith. And Malcolm would travel all over the world, but in this time here, he was traveling through Africa and he was meeting with all these tribes in, you know, sub-Saharan Africa where, you know, basically meeting with their witch doctors and, and chiefs and so forth, very unreached people groups. And, and he would meet with them and he would talk with their chief and he's explaining the covenant that God wants to make with these people and, and the covenant that God is making. I mean, that's unheard of to them. They're like, but he has all the power. He controls everything. He's got all the cards. Why would he make a covenant with someone like us if he's so powerful? And he's explained, because the love of God, 
God wants to enter covenant. God wants to be with you because of how much he loves you. And so they're, they're trying to process this and understand this. And they said, so, so Malcolm, what you're saying is God's love is plenty too much. And Malcolm sat there and he thought, huh, that's it. Plenty too much. It's overwhelming. It's more than you and I could ever imagine. That's the love he has for us. If you think you understand God's love, you have no idea. And I get that from people time to time. They sit in my office and say, oh, I know God loves me. And in my mind, I'm thinking, no, you don't. How can a finite mind understand an infinite love? It's not possible. It's really not possible. He loves you plenty too much over and above anything you can imagine or think. But here's the great thing about that love. This is why I think the love reveals the character of God, because love does something. Love doesn't do nothing. It always is doing something. Now, keep in mind, it might not act right away, because love's doing what's in another person's best interest. That's what's happening. And sometimes waiting is what the other person needs. But in our case, in humanity's case, we needed an intervention. We needed something to happen. Because the problem was us and we couldn't fix ourselves. What we needed was a brand new heart. Now you've heard me quote Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart of man is deceitful, is beyond cure. Who can understand it? And that's true of our heart when we arrived here on planet Earth, but that's not true of your heart today if you've placed your faith in Christ. Because God has done something to your heart. This is an Old Testament prophecy that I want to read to you. It's in, from the book of Ezekiel. He's talking in what's going to happen in the future because it's before the cross. You and I get to understand it after the cross. What has God already done? And so he says here in verse 25, then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. He's going to wash us. And what is what do we know, looking back on this, what is it that washed us clean? The blood of Jesus. His sacrifice on that cross forgave you, cleansed you. And look what he says, you will be clean. You will be pure. What does that say of you and I today? That you're clean and you're pure. And you might say, but, but last night wasn't such a great night. I, I was up late and I was doing this and, and this happened and I said this to this person and you don't understand. That doesn't matter. Because of what Jesus did on the cross, you are clean. You are cleansed from some, all your transgressions, all your filthiness. But moreover, he says, not just have you been forgiven. Moreover, I'll give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you and I'll remove that heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh on something that's alive. And I'm going to put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you'll be careful to observe my ordinances. He's given us a new heart. He took out the old in order that you could have a new heart. Your heart is no longer wicked. Your heart is no longer evil. It's no, you're no longer that child of wrath. You're someone new and someone different. 
Well, let me illustrate to you this way. I want you to imagine we got a house up here. And, and this house is basically, it's you. It's your little world, right? You're, you're kind of your circle of influence, you might think about it, right? And so when you and I were born, when you show up in your little world in this house, you show up dead, right? So this guy, he doesn't look so happy. And, and you'll notice what's going on in the heart, not so good, right? Little skull and crossbones, because this guy's, he's the living dead. He's the walking dead. And so he's filled with discontent. He's filled with a deceitful heart. He's this child of wrath, this child of anger. And God's nowhere to be found. He's not on the scene anyway, anywhere. So what does he do? Where does he turn for life? Turns to the flesh. He's got to find a way to earn it. Got to find a way to achieve it. Got to find a way to perform for life. He's got to find a way to protect what he's got. And then if that doesn't work, he's going to chill out and numb. And so what do we see? All kinds of a mess is formed. Because he's going to look to maybe parties and drugs or, or maybe just the, the garbage that we do to ourselves or maybe what others have done to us. And then you see this nuclear warning sign that we've got, basically, which is the toxicity that we've had in other people's lives. Again, just trying to perform, doing our best, independent of God, trying to protect ourselves, trying to numb. But you see, there's a giant mess. But the mess isn't the problem. The mess is the byproduct. The mess is the symptom. The mess is the product of the mess maker. So we have these two problems, the mess and the mess maker, and both need to be addressed. And no matter what this guy does, he can't fix it. But God, then God shows up. And God does something dramatic. First thing he does is he takes all of our mess and he puts all of the mess onto the cross. Every single sin. Every single sin has been placed on that cross. Future, past sin, everything on that cross. He paid that debt. The mess has been cleaned up. But what's left? The mess maker. And so he's got to do something more. And so the other thing he does, moreover, I'm going to take out that wicked heart, that mess maker heart, in order to give you a new heart. And to do that, he had to put you and I onto that cross. So he took that self-centered, child of wrath, vengeful, um, deceitful, no good person, placed them into Jesus Christ on that cross so that you and I were crucified with him, buried with him, so that we could be made alive together with him, as Paul says in this passage. But now as a brand new person, a new person with a new heart. And we even got a little halo because we're saints. Isn't that true? We're saints, holy people, new hearts, new desires, new want-tos, new longings. That's who we are. But then he goes even further than this because he didn't just want to make us alive and to give us new hearts and new, new, make us new people. He wanted to do something even better. What happens is now he moves in. And so here comes Jesus looking all GQ, <laughs> right? I mean, I didn't really need to say Jesus underneath there. The sunglasses kind of give it away, right? But there's Jesus hanging out with us because that's what 1 Corinthians 6 says. He who is... Join himself, the Lord is now one. 
He and I together were one all the time. Wherever I go, he goes. But notice, notice the hearts of the two. They're the same heart. Because he's given us his heart. It's our heart. That's how he's made us, in the likeness of God, in his image. And so we're new people. And if you place your faith in Christ, that's who you are today, all the time. Now notice it's if you've placed your faith in Christ. The, the idea that he's made us alive is only true of those who actually place their faith in Jesus. It's required, right? John 3, 16, the maybe most famous verse in the New Testament, for God so loved the world that whoever believes shall not perish, but have eternal life. Or later on in the same chapter, in verse 36, it talks about that this is true for those who believe, but those who don't believe, then they're still stuck in that mess, mess maker place. Or Romans 5, 17, that talks about much more those who receive. So there's an aspect here that you and I, we need to trust in it. We need to believe it. We need to receive it. And really all that means is simply saying, acknowledging that it's true and saying thank you. That's it. That's all it's required. I agree, God, that I was no good. There's something wrong with me. But you have given me this opportunity. And I just say thank you and I receive it. That's it. That's all it's required. You don't have to do anything else. It's a free gift. And that's true for salvation. But you know what? It's also true for you and I today. See, whether this is maybe the first time that you'll ever believe this, that you'll ever risk it, it's also got to be true for you and I on the 54th millionth time. Because the reality is, you and I, we got to believe this over and over and over again. I got to believe this today, that as a new person, I don't want to be that child of wrath. I don't want to live that way anymore. I want to live in a new way, in a healthy way. And, and the difference I think that this will make in our lives will be seen in how we deal with other people. Because what will happen is when we realize that all this is true because of what Jesus did for me, not because I've somehow mastered this thing called the Christian life, not because I figured it out and I know the secret sauce and the formula and how to live it, and therefore look at me. If I remember that this is only because of what Jesus has done for me, that's going to produce within me a whole lot of compassion, a whole lot of understanding, a whole lot of love. Because I'll know where I came from. And if it wasn't for Jesus, I'd still be in that mess. And so I can now have compassion to the world, even when they're acting like the world is. It's not that surprising. I can also even have compassion on my brothers and sisters in Christ who that's not true who they are, but they're acting that way because they're struggling. But I can have compassion on them because you know what? One day that's going to be me. One day I'm going to give in to the flesh and be struggling. But when I see what God's done in me, the great rich mercy and the great love that he's bestowed upon me, how do I not share that same rich mercy and great love towards other people? In fact, it is the same rich mercy and great love because it's Jesus in me doing that. And again, all he's saying is, will you trust me now to share that to a hurting world? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for what you've done and that you've given us a new heart 
We're not who we used to be anymore. And who we were, it wasn't pretty. We were, we were children of wrath, attacking, biting, devouring one another, just so that we could come out on top of something. But Jesus, you loved us. You loved us even then. Even at our worst moment, you loved us. And you loved us enough not to leave us there. And you have redeemed us. You've rescued us. You've restored us. You've made us into someone new. You took out that wicked, evil part of us and got rid of it so that you can replace it, exchange it with your heart, your life. And we're brand new people now. So I pray, Lord, that we would trust that. And trusting that would allow you now to express that same life to the world around us and the world around us would see you through us. In your name we pray, amen.